Hello and welcome to another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, now, before we get started, a quick word about Nicky Hayden. Obviously, you will have heard, unfortunately, he died as a result of the injuries sustained in a cycling accident. We are, of course, all devastated. We all knew him. We all uh, spoke to him and he was... Um, just a lovely man to actually uh, be around. However, we won't be spending any time on Nicky Hayden in this episode. We are working on a special uh, dedicated episode for him. So I hope you'll um, excuse us for not spending too much time on him. However, our thoughts, all of us at Paddock Pass Podcast, go out to his family and his fiance, and uh, we, well, we wish them all the best. Now then, what we are going to talk about is uh, Le Mans. Now, I wasn't at Le Mans, but um, uh, Neil Morrison was, and Neil Morrison is with me now. So, Neil, uh, Le Mans, tell what was your impressions of the weekend? Uh, I think you could sort of neatly split Le Mans into two parts, um, because on Thursday, everyone really in the panic was coming to terms with the news about Nicky, when we all sort of recognised the severity of his injuries. Um, and that was that was really difficult. It was quite difficult to then, you know, go about, um, just the normal day's job and try and act normal. Friday was obviously interrupted in large parts by the rain and that sort of put a bit of a dampener on things as well. Um, but then, you know, Saturday, once it sort of cleared up, Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon, we had some really interesting MotoGP sessions, great qualifying. And um, and then, you know, really three good races on Sunday. And the MotoGP race in particular was, was really spectacular. Um, and we kind of got to finally see, you know, a big showdown between two of the guys that we're pretty sure will be involved in the, the title scrap, uh, Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi, and it really was something, something to behold. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, the uh, MotoGP race was just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you know, we're all waiting for the uh, for the uh, for Marquez versus Vinales, but um, uh, I think we were more than happy to settle for uh, Marquez versus um, Valentino Rossi. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think we saw, um, you know, the the pendulum really was swinging from either side in, in the last couple of laps um, so quickly and it really was impossible to tell which way it was going to go for, you know when Rossi passed Zarco and started steaming towards the front it really was like watching you know Valentino Rossi of 2005 2008 you know in real vintage years where he was just phenomenal and it looked like Vinales was, was spent at that stage but little did we know that Vinales still had something up his sleeve yeah. and um, you know I, I really think he kind of he put Rossi under the pressure he, you know, he fought, Rossi made two mistakes in the final lap, and you know, Vinales forced them. Yeah. Um, you know, you could say you could say that maybe Rossi gifted the race to Maverick, but I think Maverick really earned that. And one of the things that you know, coming into 2017, one of the great unknowns about Maverick was just how good he was in those kind of situations where he was having to fight for it, and where he was having to fight for it right at the end of the race. Um, you know, and there's two races now: the first in Qatar, and the second in Le Mans, where he has had to really fight and he's done it on, right up until the last lap and he's kept a cool head under pressure um so yeah it was it was a great day all run for for him yeah exactly i mean the, uh, the 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 big story going into the weekend was the fact that the track had been resurfaced and everyone was wondering about how that would uh, how that would actually affect the grip and the uh, and the surface the the track seemed to have absolutely bags of grip and you really noticed 
uh, immediately that it was the Yamahas who could make uh, who could really make the the best use of that. Even even in the wet, I mean, the Yamahas were pretty right from the start. They had obviously tested at um, at, at Le Mans. Uh, I think it was before Jerez, and um, they were there for one day. And it was you know the weather conditions weren't perfect, but I still think Maverick was able to get under the the official circuit record, um, even when there were damp patches remaining on the track. So those guys had you know a bit of a bit of a working knowledge of what was going to be needed uh, in that particular weekend. Obviously, um, you know, dry track time was really severely limited. I think guys had FP4 um, to set up their bikes in the dry conditions and then they were straight into qualifying. So that was really limited. Um, I think, you know, someone like Mark Marquez, for example, didn't quite have the setup that he wanted. Um, he had just a couple of major issues on Saturday and he said that, you know, FP4 for him was just like FP1. And we kind of know with Honda with this new engine that, you know, they normally need a day to kind of get everything dialed in and working up to speed. Um, so the conditions, you could say, probably worked in Yamaha's favor as well. Um, but, uh, but you know, Yamaha, uh, Le Mans has always been a Yamaha track. Uh, you look at last year and Lorenzo dominated. Rossi was second. The year before, I think it was a one, Yamaha 1-2 one as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it just has that sort of uh, that nice layout where you need to have really good acceleration, great stability on the brakes. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the two Yamaha, well, you know, the Yamaha M1 at the moment definitely has that in abundance. The Yamaha is also just fantastic with grip. If you get, uh, Because in a way, uh, Lamar was the, the was the polar opposite of uh, Jerez, where Jerez had absolutely no grip. And then once it got hot, uh, it had even less grip. And uh, that basically made it impossible to ride for everyone except for the except the Hondas. And then we come to Lamar and Lamar has got um, uh, absolutely bags and bags of grip. And uh, it was the Yamahas who could really exploit, especially the corner exit, uh, also, the grip in the uh, grip in the corners, grip uh, uh, at lean angle, um, that uh, they could really, really use their corner speed and get drive out corners. Yeah, just so much faster than uh, the, than almost everyone else. And a few people were slightly concerned that you know the, there's a new surface and it's very grippy. It's going to be a little bit abrasive on tires, but um, you know, really, we saw that you know Johan Zarco, for example, was able to run soft rear, and you know, it was able to run that right until the end of the race, and he was still very competitive. So um, yeah, so I think the new surface was was a success because we were expecting uh, when I saw the tire list I was sort of thinking well you know um, we'll see when the tires actually start going off for Zarco but they just really didn't they uh, you know it, it kept good probably till about maybe five laps to the end yeah exactly when Rossi started making his charge yeah. uh, they yeah. I mean the, the the grip was good and they got rid of most of the bumps except for I think one in so on the entry to turn three and there was a fairly spectacular incident there <laughs> yeah are you referring to, to Jack's crash yes yeah, Mr. Miller Mr. Yeah. Miller I mean it's amazing it looked like one of those crashes where you know the, the whoever it is is just they're, they're not going to walk away but he came away with a, I think he's got a fracture uh, a fractured bone in his hand but apart from that and he's very very badly shaken up but apart from that he was uh, he was relatively unhurt yeah, it was one of those crashes that you you just thought defied all logic. Um, you saw him piling into that that trackside wall, and uh, you know, kind of flipped over a few times, and you just thought, oh my God, you know, this really could be could be the worst. It had kind of eerie shades of uh, 
Daijiro Kado's crash in Suzuka in 2003 where, you know, he, it looks as if he's fallen off the side of the bike and then the bike is suddenly veered into, you know, the, the trackside wall at, uh, you know, a terrifying speed. And, and Jack was just so lucky that he managed to, to jump off the side of the bike as quick as he did. And yeah, just that he bounced remarkably well. Um, and even he didn't know how it quite had happened. Um, you know, you, Jorge Lorenzo made, you know, him and uh, Jack had a bit of a falling out on Friday during the safety commission. And uh, I think Jack made a bit of a smart Alan comment. And Jorge, I think, made some very ill-advised comments the following day on Saturday, um, saying that, you know, Jack basically had someone looking down on him. God picked him up when he was flying through the air and uh, put him into safety's hands. And, you know, considering everything that had gone on in that week, I don't think Lorenzo's comments were best advised. <laughs> um, but we, we, we kind of, you know, being the sort of uh, unruly mob of hounds that we are, we put uh, Jorge's comments to Jack waiting for a reaction. And he said, yeah, fair enough. Someone was looking down. Yeah. At me. <laughs> yeah. I'm not religious, but, you know, someone definitely was looking out for me on that occasion. So, yeah, I think Jack uh, was definitely very shaken up by it. And, um, you know, I think he did remarkably well to, you know, secure a top 10 finish on Sunday. I mean, I was amazed that the, the Jack even came back out again after FP4 and then went straight into qualifying which is a, a testament to the mental fortitude of motorcycle races I think because I would have had a lie down with about 17 stiff drinks for um, uh, for a week <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, I don't. I, I don't think you know. You could say Jack didn't have seventeen stiff drinks, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, they're the breathalyzing. They're, they're now breathalyzing riders, aren't they? So, uh, so I think we can be fairly sure that it's a, he might have had a stiff drink in the evening, but um, uh, it was probably on that many painkillers that he was best. Uh, they was told not to. But uh, anyway, yeah, no. So we went. To, we went from FP FP four actually turned out to be the first dry session of uh, of the weekend, and that was that was actually fairly interesting um you start to see a little bit of a turnaround in uh, in in fortunes and stuff and then uh, from there we went straight into qualifying and qualifying was absolutely scintillating absolutely outrageous we saw Johan Zarco in Q1 and it's worth probably mentioning that FP3 earlier in that early in that day was really really exciting um uh, wet track last 15 minutes it was just about ready to use like slicks at a good speed and you had basically a, a, a early qualifying session and then we saw some very interesting results both the ktms were straight into q2 some big names were uh, left in uh, purgatory as it's called uh, q1 <laughs> and um yeah and, and obviously zarko was one of those and zarko basically you know devised this strategy of fitting soft tires. I think FP4 confirmed to him that soft tires were going to work really well. Um, he had used the softs in Qatar earlier in the year, hadn't he? Yeah. And, you know, was, made them work brilliantly. And he just stayed out. He did something I don't think we've we've seen, David, doing it successfully no. and at that speed. He stayed out and just did a mini race simulation, 10 laps, just cracking them off. Yeah. No, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, um, <laughs> sorry. He did uh, ten laps in a row, superb pace, and I think his fastest lap was at the end of that run. And uh, you know, he went in, had a little breather, sat out the first I don't know seven minutes of Q two, and then went out again and qualified in the front row. And it was just wonderful to watch. Yeah, um, you know, once again, Zarco just showing um, that he is he's been really the, the biggest sensation of this year yeah and the, the other thing is I mean the amount of pressure that he's got on him is 
especially this weekend was just go was just just insane because uh, basically there'd been talk of nothing but will Joan Zarco get his first podium but it started before the uh, even before they got to Le Mans from there it was just you know so Joan is this is this going to be your first podium or what and to operate under that kind of pressure is just phenomenal and then to actually actually pull it off to actually stay calm uh stick to your plan um stick to your plan through uh, through qualifying not get nervous by the fact that you're out of q2 um uh, and then go into the race and do and ride the way that he did is just i mean the as i say the mental strength the and, and focus and uh, the ability not to get distracted by the 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 fripperies and the excitement um, of everything that goes on is just uh, just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, it really is. And um, we were speaking just a bit before we started recording, and I was saying to you that it's not just that he's getting really good results; it's that every single weekend he's doing something which takes you back and makes you think that takes incredible balls that takes such bravery to yeah. do that you know in Qatar you had him leading the race in Argentina he had sensational consistency uh, in, in Coda he obviously made that move on Rossi yeah. showing no, no respect for his elders and then in Jerez he was just wonderful at the start of the race you know each each race that he's gone out in or each weekend that we've had so far this year he's done something which has made you think wow that that took something really special to do that and um, yeah as you say coming back to Q1 and Q2 uh, again this is it because obviously the the last things that we've been saying about Q2 is um uh, Mark Marquez strategy of going you know swapping bikes uh, swapping bikes twice instead of just once for for Q2 and now Sarkev comes along uh, which again it's a strategy which everybody copies because they think it's successful Sarkev comes along makes up his own his own mind this is what I'm going to do I'm going to go out and do one long run uh, does one long run in in Q1 and gets uh, and gets through and then he does another well I mean he doesn't have very very much tires tire left and he's also very tired he sits out the first half of uh, of Q2, which again takes just an enormous amount of courage because you, you're sitting there watching people go really, really fast and thinking, sorry, I'll go out in a minute and just set a lap. It takes an enormous amount of mental strength to plough your own furrow rather than actually follow, copy what everyone else does because that's what most people do, just copy what other riders are doing. And, and Zarko is really not, uh, not, not copying others, which I think is just... Um, uh, it's fascinating to watch, and I think uh, people should be very worried about it. It's quite telling that riders that have nine, ten years of experience are looking at what Zarko does and saying, oh, I didn't think you could do that, but actually fair enough. Like, I mean, on, on Saturday, you had Davizioso talking about Zarko's strategy in Q1 and Q2 and being like, I didn't ever think of doing that. But, you know, obviously the soft works and you can run it for 10 laps consistently and it doesn't give away. Yeah, sure. Okay. And it's like, wow, that is a guy that has five races that you're looking towards and saying that, you know, um, usually it's the other way around. Um, so, yeah, so it's fantastic. And it's just another quick thing about Zarco. I mean, um, we talk about the confidence that he has. Uh, I spoke to Hervé Poncheral, the, the manager of Tech 2 Yamaha, uh, on Sunday evening. And he was saying that although it's great, the French Grand Prix is fantastic for his team. He said sometimes it can be a bit of a ball ache just in terms of the attention that his team gets, his riders get, pressure. Sometimes not delivering under this pressure can be a real downer. And he, he just, you know, was, was amazed that Johan was able to keep his head. And he said that after the, the race in Qatar, when Johan crashed out, uh, his rider came to him and said, look, don't think that I was riding over the limit there. Yeah, I actually made like a, a simple mistake and just put the bike where I shouldn't have put it. 
it was a lapse in concentration. It wasn't that I was like, you know, riding beyond myself. And Zarko actually, well, according to Hervé, Zarko came to him and said, don't worry, we'll have another performance like this again soon. And sure enough, you know, in Qatar, he was able to do that. And, you know, it was also striking that in Coda and in Argentina, Zarko spoke of his difficulties at the end of the race. Um, but in, you know, I think it was from half race onwards in both tracks that, you know, he started to feel he was fading away. But in Jerez, he said... Okay, maybe that was stretched after two thirds of the race. He started to feel as if he, you know, was fading away. And then here again, there was progress again, where it was maybe only the last four or five laps, where he wasn't quite as strong as he had been for the whole race. So we're seeing this kind of progression where he's getting stronger for longer, longer in the race. Um, the further we go into the calendar, and um, you know, that, that only bodes really well for him as well. Yeah, to a certain extent, it reminds me of um, what uh, Emilio Alzamora said about uh, about Mark Marquez um, uh, in 2013, his first season, where Alzamora said basically the first half of the year the bike was taking Marquez for a ride, and in the second, it was only really in the second half of the year that uh, Marquez actually mastered the whole the whole repertoire, and actually uh, could control the bike and manage the bike and and do uh, and put it exactly where he wanted. So yeah, it's that same it's that same kind of really really rapid progress that you really only see uh, with. With the top riders, I mean, and, yeah. and, and to me, the most fascinating thing about uh, about Joan Zarco is the fact that he is what twenty six. Uh, 26, 27. Normally what um, uh, teams try to do is they're always on the lookout for, you know, the, the youngest possible talent because they think that if he isn't any good by, his, by the time he's sort of, you know, 19 or 20, uh, then he's never going to be any good. And now we have someone who took a long time to actually mature, who was uh, a bit up and down in um, uh, in one two fives. Had his moments, certainly showed that he had talent. Uh, went to Moto2, t- took a couple of years of being sort of nowhere um, uh, then got to uh, got into his groove and, and managed to do uh, back-to-back championships and so does that now mean that uh, team managers will start thinking okay well or perhaps the fact that you took a little while uh, a little while to actually get up to speed means you know uh, that they could be a little bit more patient do you think uh, do, do you think they might start looking at riders who are what I don't know Twenty five and twenty six instead of um, instead of eighteen and nineteen. And there's also the thing that you know we were you mentioned about um, Al Samora speaking in thirteen about Marquez. You know Marquez wasn't necessarily crashed out of races, but I do remember him like he still does now, having quite a fair few tip-offs and qualifying yeah. and in practice. You know, we're not really seeing that from Zarco. I mean, he crashed in FP3 at Le Mans, but um, yeah, I mean, it's not as if he's out there, you know, pushing the bike over its limits in practice sessions. You know, he's just going by it steadily. And I think that's that's fantastic. Yeah, perhaps perhaps the perhaps my rider of the of the season so far. You know, he's just been phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, obviously, the big battle was at the front between the two Yamahas. I mean, Zarco once again got off the line, got a sensational start once again. We had a an all Yamaha front row, which I think was the first time since two thousand and eight. So we had an all Yamaha front row. Zarco gets uh, got away um, uh, almost straight from the uh, straight from the start. It was. Rossi and Vinales following at first. They finally sort of, uh, uh, I think, again, he led for six or seven laps. Uh, the the two factory riders got through, and then this this fantastic battle unfolded between uh, uh, Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi, and um, they were just the intensity of it. Towards the end, they were they, they were going faster and faster. The lap record was falling, lap after lap after lap, and it all came down. 
to the the last uh, to the last lap. As you said, um, Valentino Rossi made a mistake uh, going into uh, Garage Ver, I think, the double right hander. He made a mistake there a couple of times, um, and you thought, no, 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 it's it's all over. He's not going to get close enough. But he closed him down through um, uh, Shimano Buff, which is my favourite uh, corner name ever. Got into the corner a little bit too hot and. Down he went. That was uh, that was it. End of the end of the race for Valentino Rossi, and he looked absolutely gutted once he got back on the bike. <laughs> he was, yeah, he was devastated. Um, although, you know, yeah, he was. You could see he was a bit pissed off after the race, but at the same time, yeah, he said that was the best he felt on the bike all season. Um, towards the end, whenever the fuel load lightened, he said he felt really, really good, and. You know, he did stress that this is an 18-run championship. And, yeah, I don't know. I think, um, I don't know. There were, there were definitely positives to take from Rossi. Um, he also, going into the next race, he'll have this new stiffer front tyre construction, uh, which the riders have voted to, to introduce for, for Mugello onwards. That's going to work in his favour. And it just seemed that, you know, it, this wasn't... You know, Rossi had a really strong weekend. He was second in qualifying, as you said. He wasn't playing catch-up all weekend. Uh, there was a lot of positives there, so yeah, I think he was he was gutted. He was definitely gutted, and as you said, I think it was just a wee tiny touch of the uh, the rear brake at uh, turn eleven, which ultimately led to his downfall. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, you could just see how badly he wanted to win Yamaha's five hundredth uh, Grand Prix race. To be perfectly frank, it seems to me like he just it it was how much he just wanted to win a race. He talks about the taste of victory, and then and when he whenever he talks about it, he talks about it in very very physical terms, and you can tell he can actually he can actually taste it. Do you know what I mean? And he could feel that it was so, it was so incredibly close, and that was what pushed what caused him just to to push so far. But to, to, you know, at his age to be uh, taking that many risks just to, in the hope of winning is. Um, absolutely phenomenal and and something he definitely deserves to be praised for right well um that's the amars there's plenty more to talk about so we shall do that once we come back from a break hey guys jensen here just a quick message to make sure you're following the show on facebook that's facebook.com slash paddock pass podcast all right now back to the show Well, while we were all watching the front of the race, um, there was an awful lot happening, happening a little bit further back. And I suppose the most interesting developments were with the Hondas. It looked like uh, Mark Marcus was going to be able to hang, uh, sort of at least hang in there and, and score some points. But that didn't happen. He fell at exactly the same place as Jack Miller uh, uh, crashed, which is uh, the entrance to turn three. About halfway through this. Uh, uh, and he had already crashed twice to turn three over the weekend. Sorry? And he had already crashed twice to turn three that weekend. Yeah, before before the race. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And you, uh, it makes you wonder how much the uh, again the new front will help him because he was definitely one of the riders who'd been pushing hard for the uh, uh, to get the new stiffer front because I think it works for him. So you wonder if it was uh, if it was the tire starting to overheat a little bit, but uh, maybe he just got an awful lot of practice uh, uh, crashing in that corner. And um, I think I think it was you know Marquez was basically. Uh, you know, the Yamaha has almost like laid a little trap for him um, because they gave him the belief in the first half of the race that he could run that pace. Yeah. And then the Yamaha suddenly started getting faster. And 
you know, we talked a lot about this last year when Marquez had, you know, an advantage in the championship to protect. You know, he, he could finish fourth whenever he had 50 points in hand. Yeah. But whenever he has to make up points, finishing fourth isn't quite as easy to accept. No. And it's especially not as easy to accept when Danny Pedrosa is closing in on you from behind. Yes. You know, yeah. and I think we, if we've seen one thing from Mark in the past couple of years, it's he really does not like to be beaten by another Honda. Um, so, yes, uh, I think, um, yeah, it was really uncharacteristic of Mark to make two, you know, two mistakes uh, in the first five races. You know, the, we haven't really seen that. I don't think even in 2015 he crashed that much at the start of the season. Um, and yes. It's, I guess, it's quite concerning, you know. But at the same time, I still think Honda is 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 a is a really good package. Um, but yeah, it was. I think it was quite a costly mistake from Mark, and suddenly that momentum that he had recovered from, you know, after his fall in Argentina, that's just gone now, and he's going to Mugello, which is a you know always a a very good track for Yamaha, very good track for both Vinales and Rossi. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it, it wasn't a good result for Mark at all. No, exactly. But it was a very good uh, good result for his teammate, Danny. Pedrosa had a um, a, a fantastic result off of what had looked like a very very unpromising uh, weekend, but he was just struggling with tyres, right? Yeah, exactly. Like we all know, Pedros as well documented issues with uh, with his weight, where he just isn't really able to generate heat in the tyres when it's cold, like someone like Crutchlow or Marquez is, you know, Pedroza's not really aggressive on the brakes like his teammates. Um, so it takes a little bit longer for the tyres to come up to work in temperature for him. And, you know, the same thing was happening on Friday. He was nowhere on Saturday morning whenever we had kind of wet, drying conditions and then a you know, dry uh, line emerged. You know, Pedroza was a second last, I think, yeah. only Lorenzo was slower and he was just stranded. Um, but FP4 looked good qualifying he was just pipped by Zarco and I think he said on Sunday that he stayed up most of the night thinking how am I going to navigate my way through this first chicane and you know Pedrosa hasn't really been that fast on the opening laps in the last couple of years um, but he was he was good and I think obviously you know we had the highest temperatures of the weekend on Sunday afternoon when the race took place um, so that worked into his favour um, but yeah I also think we're, we're dealing with a, a, a very different Danny Pedrosa to the last year yeah um, in 2017 and you know he was really up for it and I thought Pedrosa rode really really well yeah exactly it does make you wonder what would have what would have happened had he not quite been pipped by uh, by Zarco in um, uh, in Q1 and actually made it through to Q2 you would have thought you know he's going to be uh, he would have been much closer to the, to the front and he might have been able to stick uh, stick at the front right at the start but I think even he probably wouldn't have had that pace to to stick with uh, the two movie star Yamaha's in the final bit maybe you could have challenged Zarco yeah um, had had he had he started a bit further forward um, but uh, but nonetheless you know we look at the championship now and you know Vinales leads and it's Danny Pedrosa that finds himself in second yeah yeah exactly I mean uh, we were talking about it uh, after Jerez the, the the championship was well there was 10 points between fourth and first and fourth and now all of a sudden that's uh, it's it's very different indeed and now it's what is it yes so there is um, what 17 uh, uh, 17 points yeah, exactly. I mean, all of a sudden, it's, it's opened right up again. But then again, it, it, this seems like we're going to be in for another year where it, you can't go race to race 
people are going to make uh, people are going to make mistakes, and and it isn't it really isn't going to be over until the final uh, the the last few races of the season uh, once the the gap settles because because uh, the the pressure just seems to be so high that um, uh, people are being forced into uh, forced into mistakes. Yeah, and then there are going to be tracks we go to where the tire allocation is going to suit one manufacturer yeah. a lot more than it's going to suit another, as we saw in Jerez. Yeah, you know where Yamaha. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Um, speaking to one of our colleagues who in turn had been speaking to someone from Honda at Le Mans, he had asked this person at Honda, what did you guys do right to get a one-two? And the person at Honda said, no, it wasn't a case of us getting it right. It was a case of Yamaha getting it badly wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think we're going to have more of these, uh, more of these days, more of these weekends where, yeah, one weekend it's going to be a one-two for a certain manufacturer, and then the next weekend it could be the opposite. This also is is what's so great about the uh, uh, about Jean Zarco being so strong. Uh, you know, the, the one podium already, and and you have to say there's going to be more of him uh, of those to come. Uh, that makes the championship more interesting because it means that he's taking big points of of um, uh, off of off of other riders when he's in between a, a Yamaha and a Honda uh, or a Honda and a Yamaha, whichever way is it, around it is. Uh, that's you know that's a lot of points all of a sudden that 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 uh, the, the, uh, that that that's making big difference. That's, I mean you know the difference between first and third is nine points, not five points for first and second. So um, uh, it really really complicates. Uh, complicates the championship and uh, makes it all the better for us. It was a complicated weekend for uh, for Ducati as well, despite the fact that Andrea Dovizioso actually ended up with a with a, with a fairly decent result, crossed the line in fourth. But um, uh, he was still, you know, twelve seconds back. It's quite a long it's quite a long gap. And Dovizioso was saying that now that Ducati find themselves in a situation where they have to start fighting for the title it's more about the performance over the result and he said the result was good but the performance wasn't quite so pleasing um, and you know and there was one point in the race where Davidsioza looked very well placed indeed um, he was kind of tailing Pedrosa or sorry he was on Pedrosa's tail as uh, the Spaniard inched towards the front four um, and it looked like at one point he could have got involved um, but he said that he was riding absolutely at the limit at that point and some points over the limit and eventually he just had to ease it back just a tiny little bit um but yeah fourth place you know was a was a decent result um although we did expect i think a little bit more from the ducatis you know because in the last two years le mans has been a particularly strong track for them um you know long straight big acceleration uh, advantage in in previous years um and maybe that wasn't quite as apparent this year yeah exactly i think uh, um uh, jorge lorenzo certainly suffered the most there but that was mainly just from a from uh, a lack of setup time uh, he said he was particularly unhappy um on slick tires in in some of the sketchy conditions in um, fp1 and fp3 which he, he which just really really didn't suit him at all yeah he was uh, he was awful in fp3 it was uh, he was having his he was reliving the Australian Grand Prix the qualifying for the Australian Grand Prix last year all over again when it's just circulating the track six, seven seconds a lap slower than um, than the rest and I didn't see it I didn't see it but I was told that on Sky Italia uh, on Saturday morning there was they did capture a shot of Tardozzi going over to Pedro, um, going over to Lorenzo at the end of the session and having some very very strong words mm. um, so it was clear that maybe Tardozzi was thinking that um, you know, perhaps the the problem was in his head. Well, you know, rather than uh, rather than anything with the bike, what the bike was doing, which you know, I think Jorge would, would openly admit 
he's just not that good in the, those conditions. No, exactly. I mean, he's still, he's the big crash at Aston. I think that still sort of like plays in his mind. And uh, ever since then, in mixed conditions, he's just absolutely hated it. And now the really big problem, uh, especially in FP3, was it was cold and uh, the, it, it was, you know, it was, it was very, very sketchy. There was, uh, there was places where there was grip and there was still damp patches and all the rest of it. And, and you can go pretty fast in those conditions, but you, uh, the only way to do that is to get heat in your tires. And the only way to get heat in your tires is to buy, is by, you know, really, really pushing them. And, uh, Lorenzo, for a start, Lorenzo's got a smooth style and doesn't get that much heat into his tires anyway, because he'll often choose a slightly softer compound than others. Um, but then when you add in this sort of fear of the conditions, uh, then he ends up going even slower and um, uh, really just has to switch his brain off and uh, and go for it. But th- that's um, easy for us to say um, and a lot more uh, more difficult when you're actually at the controls yourself. And, uh, you know, I think it's like with Lorenzo, it's a bit like Davizioso. You could probably look at a sixth place and say it's not so bad. But to be... 12 seconds back of his teammate at a track that he's been fantastic at over the years um, and which he had ear- earmarked as you know a really strong track for him and Ducati um, yeah it definitely wasn't uh, the weekend didn't pan out as he had hoped no exactly it's going to be interesting seeing um, what happens going into uh, uh, going into Mugello and going into Barcelona because I mean they're, again they're two tracks which, where he's really strong at and also two tracks that uh, the Ducati ought to be uh, ought to be decent so it's going to be very interesting to see how he uh, uh, holds up with uh, with those two yeah absolutely obviously um Cal Crutchlo ended up fifth which is uh not a not a bad result all things considered but he was a long way back behind the front um uh, got a bit beaten up by um uh, by Danny Pedrosa surprisingly there was a, there was a, a rather entertaining coming together of the two um uh, Crutchlow left the door open and Danny Pedrosa didn't need a second a, a, a second invitation and another kind of example of this uh, you know aggressive Danny that we saw parts of in Mizano last year where he just took no prisoners saw a gap and went for it and didn't think twice about it um, which you know we haven't always been able to say that about Pedroza in the past. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the factory which uh, which which struggled most was uh, was Suzuki. Suzuki just had uh, a bit of a nightmare, and it just really doesn't seem like um, uh, Andrea Iannone is getting anywhere near the results that were expected at the start of the season. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, um, Valencia test and the Sepang test in February seem a long way away right now. Yeah. You know, Iannone was second to that test, and you know, it was it was quite commonplace to hear Rossi speak of him as one of the guys that was going to be challenged at the front most weekends. Um, and, you know, judging by his speed and the Suzuki speed last year, yeah, you, you could see why. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really not going well. Um, Suzuki was on the podium last year, not that far from second place. Yeah. And, you know, he only finished uh, 48 seconds back, 10th. But, you know, had it not been for crashes and retirements, he would have been maybe 15th. I mean, it's, it's really bad. It's really, really bad for a factory that was challenging for podiums or top, at least top fours, top fives, pretty much every race in the dry last year. Oh, what was um, what was Ian only complaining of? The same thing that he's been complaining of, you know, since uh, the Qatar test, that he just doesn't have the, doesn't have the confidence to, to break basically in the means in which he normally does um, he likes to use the brake all the way into the corner um, whereas basically the Suzuki doesn't really allow you to do that you know most of the braking needs to be done in the straight line and then you need to release the brakes and 
threw it back into the corner with real speed. Um, almost pretty much how Vinales, you know, did it. And Vinales mastered it last year. Um, so there's that. And Ian only says because of that, he finds it really, because he's not sure of exactly how the braking needs to be done, he finds it really difficult to overtake people. And you've seen it um, at the start of the race. I mean, the start of uh, Sunday's race, he was absolutely nowhere. I think he was done in 18th, 19th in the opening laps. Um, so he finds it really difficult to, to overtake people and gets beaten up quite a bit. And then he said the traction, um, you know, that we heard yeah. <laughs> how many times last year did we hear guys, the Suzuki guys talking about traction. Yeah, too much spinning. Um, and it's clear that they've just not got the thing hooked up as well as they as well as they need um, I also think you know it's not helping you know last year Vinales had a year of experience and he was operating top six and Espargo was obviously you know a good solid rider yeah. so you had two guys being able to give input this year it's been very stop start Alex Rins has been injured um, he's been in and out of the team they've had to get replacement in Gantoli and he only is basically doing donkey work and you know and Tard um, sorry not Tardotzi yeah, Davide Brivio took a risk given Ianoni, you know, this position of being a team leader and they can base their development around him and he had hoped that Ianoni would respond to this kind of added uh, position and it's just not really worked out in that way. No, that that's that's not really Andrea Iannone's personality. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he, he takes that sort of role. That sort of role goes to his head rather than to his uh, in in rather the wrong way, rather than uh, uh, <laughs> seeing it as a leadership role. But uh, it's yeah, uh, but not not an awful lot you can uh, you can do about that. Speaking of Alasia Spargo, because you've got to think, you know, they they would have been better off keeping uh, Alasia Spargo, and Spargo was having a very strong race on the Aprilia until. Um, uh, until what his engine expired, basically. Yeah, yeah. Not for the first time he's had a few. Well, not for the first time in a pretty actually he's had a few uh, reliability issues this yeah. year. I think uh, Sam Lowe's has had encountered uh, quite a few. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. Uh, there was a private test in Montmelo and Barcelona today on Tuesday. Espargaro again was having quite a few reliability issues and really was quite limited to you know, by these. Um, so yeah, this is something that pretty really need to work out. Um, because as you say, he was on for a good result. Ninth place, I think, perhaps before. In fact, eighth, eighth place. Um, I think he had just passed Jack Miller um, before um, yeah, yeah, before he expired. Um, so yeah, disappointing end of the weekend for Aprilia. Did just come hot foot back from the Barcelona test. Um, uh, they Because they closed the media centre, he'd been forced to sit uh, almost in the grandstands. Yeah, exactly. I was uh, actually sat trackside with my little uh, box of sandwiches and carton of juice. <laughs> Just like uh, just like the good old days when I didn't have to sit and look at a laptop screen all day. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah, uh, obviously the big question for me is because they it's a Ducati, um, uh, Honda, uh, or certainly I think Mark Feed yesterday Aprilia. Uh, the big question is: Did Ducati roll out any uh, any of their aerodynamic uh, bits and bobs, or uh, was it just the plane fairings that we got to see? Yeah, from what I saw, it was just the plane fairings. Um, I was at the track. Uh, I kind of arrived around 2 p.m., so I, I wasn't there for the morning. Um, but from what I saw, Chicali were just in the plane variance. Um, they may have something. They may have something tomorrow, um, and indeed they may have tried something yesterday, and um, because they were testing on Monday as well. Um, but on on Wednesday they're going to have Casey Stoner testing as well as the as well as the the, the factory riders. Um, so you know we've heard that Ducati's working like mad on this kind of uh, this aerodynamic feature that you know they, they didn't quite get right first time round. Um, so yes, we should hopefully see something soon. And you know with Mugello just around the corner, one would suspect that. 
you know, this is the perfect opportunity to do that. But I, I saw nothing today, which is, you know, speaking on Tuesday. Right. And uh, d- did you get to speak to any of the riders after the test? Yeah, I spoke to a few of the guys. Um, spoke to the Aprilia guys. Spoke to Crutchlow, uh, Cal Crutchlow. Spoke to um, Carol Abraham and Loris Baz. Um, I my first question was about the new chicane, um, which is it's almost like an altered version of the the Formula One chicane. What they use when the F one cars go there, it's really tight. I went to watch trackside, and it's really really slow. I mean that those final double rights in, in Barcelona used to be you know two of the finest corners yeah. in the the whole calendar and it's yeah, it's just a shadow of that now it's really really slow um i asked carol abraham the first thing he said is it's shit i asked loris baz and the first thing he said is it's fucking shit <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so i yeah basically all the riders are saying that it's just not it's not it's not for a motor gp yeah i mean you posted a video on uh, on crash.net i mean i would definitely have to agree with the riders it just looked absolutely terrible it looked really really slow and in fact um, uh, Michael Neves from um, um, who's a road tester for MCN posted um, uh, he tweeted me a link to a video of the road test they did of the Triumph and even on a Triumph 765 which has considerably less horsepower than a MotoGP bike it, that, that chicane just looked absolutely terrible really 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 slow basically just and uh, far too slow for uh, uh, for bike because they've had to tighten everything up and shorten it up to leave enough uh, runoff for everything and uh, as you say those those two rights those last two rights and in fact that whole last section um from uh, lacacia from the uh, from the big uh, the the big long left hander which is now uh, a much sharper um tighter bend and then the all of those right handers going around to to the last two turns were absolutely fantastic and now it's um it's a, a shadow of its uh, of, or that section certainly is a shadow of of its former self yeah it's like a go-kart track it really is and do you know what it reminds me do you know what the, the final chicane reminds me of uh, do you remember in around 2002 3, 4 uh, Silverstone they oh, yeah. put, a sh- put a chicane at Woodcut for the British Superbikes and the World Superbikes and it was just like you yeah, know, it was awful it, it, <laughs> awful it was just awful yeah yeah like a, like a, just like a you know taking a great corner and just thinking right how can we put like a right angle bend in the middle of it you know it's just yeah really bad so um, yeah it was, it was quite interesting listening to Sam Lowe's about it because he said um, that he doesn't foresee anything crazy in a MotoGP race but when you've got Moto2 grid or Moto3 grid where the bikes are maybe going to be slightly more packed together you can just see you know a lot of you know a lot of trouble on the first lap um, just too many bikes going in for the same bit of tarmac all going very very slow and you know one bike you know skittles who knows uh, what can happen so he thought that you know it's it, it could prove quite hazardous uh, on the first lap of the smaller class races so yes um yeah it's a shame it's a real shame yeah yeah exactly well i mean all we can do is the hope at some point they actually fix the uh uh fix the wall on the grandstand at that corner so they can actually restore that for an ultimate uh, uh right-hander but we shall have to wait and see right we shall uh, take a quick break and then uh, when we come back we shall talk about moto 2 and moto 3 um because there was plenty to talk about there and we shall go through our winners and losers of le mans David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, 
please remember to leave us a review and rate us as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. So, welcome back. Uh, we, I mean, apart from a fantastic MotoGP race, we had a, well, a frankly rather tedious Moto2 race, but an, uh, <laughs> a uh, fascinating Moto3 race. Well, certainly an eventful Moto3 race. Moto2 was uh, back to its old form again. For Franco Morbidelli won convincingly. Um, but I think for me, the big, uh, the big story in Moto Two was um, uh, Pekka Banyaya, Banyaya coming second. I mean, obviously, Morbidelli winning puts him in a very commanding lead in the championship. Um, uh, four wins from five races, and uh, and very strong for the Mark VDS uh, team as well because they've won all five races so far. Um, but Pekka Banyaya second podium uh, in a row, uh, just a really impressive performance. Yeah, I agree with you, Dave. Although I think tedious is maybe just a little bit too far. I think if if, if Hareth was the the sort of the standard bearer for Moto Two race, and then you know the race we had in Le Mans was positively electric. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was it was it was standard fare. It was basically you know one guy chasing another guy down. Uh, you know, Moto Two races don't really fit a pattern of you know what it was like in two thousand and twelve. 13, you know, when Marquez and Redding and Ian O'Neill were all scrapping it out, where there was just lots of fairing, bashing and banging. Basically, now it's the pattern is a rider gets into the lead, sets a very, very strong pace, and then we watch the rider behind either inch towards him or just slightly fall away bit by bit, you know, and it's, it's just often quite tense, but we don't really see this, you know, crazy sort of... yeah you know, maniacal nature that we once had, uh, you know, which once defined Moto2, you know, there was a time when Moto2 was the best race of the day. Um, and yeah, yeah, this was this was another case. Morbidelli was was riding really well um, and, you know, kept a, kept a cool head under pressure. Um, ben Banyaya is, yeah, really turning into quite, quite fine because, you know, there's quite a few good, fast kids um, that have made the jump up from Moto3 this year. Um, you know, Brad Bender obviously has been sidelined by injury. Um, but uh, but Banaya at the moment, you know, it's not Quartararo, it's not Bender at the moment, it's not um, Jorge Navarro that we're looking at and saying, wow, this kid, you know, has made the transition really well. It's, it's Peko. And um, yeah, just it kind of adds, uh, you know, weight to the to the idea that he's going to be a MotoGP sooner than we think. Yeah, I mean, the, the other uh, I was thinking about that as uh, uh, as I was watching because um, uh, the other big news was that um, uh, the Aspar team have signed another contract with uh, with Ducati. I mean, we talked to. Uh, uh, Gino Borsoi at uh, Austin about this, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, it looks like we we're, we're close to a a, Ducati, a contract with Ducati." Uh, and we also talked to we sort of had a little brief chat about Pekka Banyaya, and um, uh, he was very very um, uh, complimentary about Banyaya. And you've got to think uh, because Banyaya actually had a go on the uh, on the GP14 at um, uh, the Valencia Test last year, and he looked really really good. And his times were actually very very. Respectable, so you've got to think that um, Aspar isn't um, back in that garage, uh, uh, waving money at him and saying, you know, come and have a go, come and uh, <laughs> uh, come and have a, come and ride our uh, our Ducati for next year. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and it's just, you know, it's not just Benaya on the bike. I think he has a sort of an air of a very assured young gentleman off it, you know, very confident and yeah, just he has a bit of an aura about him, really. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think he definitely is a, a bit of a star in Witten. Um, and I do know that um, Aspar team were absolutely devastated to see him leave at the end of uh, at the end of 2016. You know, they they loved having him there. They really thought he was a huge talent, as you said about Gino, um, Eugene Laverty. I know, obviously, was in Aspar's team last year, and you know, got to see Peko through the, the that team's Moto Three effort, and he was really suitably impressed. And he expects big things from him. You know, and it's when you hear guys like Eugene that have been about racing for you know forever. Um, you think, well, this, this kid must be something. Yeah, definitely. Well, Moto three was if Moto two was not particularly exciting. Moto three got off to a, an extremely eventful start. It was um, uh, absolute carnage. Um, uh, well, there was <laughs> there was a uh, there was an incident at uh, turn. I think it's four or five. Four. Four. Yeah, on the way uh, on the way. Well, there was uh, there was an incident at the, uh, the which is coming out of the uh, coming out of the chicane. Uh, the chicane uh, four or five riders came together and um, uh, uh, went down and then got back on track. And uh, one of the bikes ended up trailing oil all over the track. And uh, where as the entire pack came round to start lap two, uh, I think we had what sixteen crashes in turn five. Yeah, sixteen guys. It was absolutely incredible. Um, I thought, I thought last year, if you remember the Moto Three race in Sepang, um, where we had a, a load of guys going down at I think turn six there, um, you know this was even this was even more chaotic. And you know if you've seen, there was a video doing the rounds on Twitter on Sunday evening, uh, a slow mo of Nico Antonelli uh, lying in the gravel trap, sitting up and. Uh, one of the bikes coming in, I, it might have been, I forget which bike it was, but there was a bike coming towards him and he just managed to duck his head on. Yeah. You know, cat-like reactions. And, you know, Nico was really, really so, so lucky. He could have, you know, he could have died. You know, it was really quite a severe incident and uh, it was remarkable that, um, you know, I think, although a bit battered and bruised, most of the people involved were, were largely okay. Yeah, I think um, Antonelli and Nicola Bulaga, because uh, Nicola Bulaga really yeah. got uh, got a fair old whack from a, from one of the bikes and Joan Mir all went to the, uh, to the medical centre, but they were all clear to race. Uh, in the end, it turned out that, well, there was a bit of confusion as to who's, uh, uh, who who was to blame for the uh, uh, for the mess. Uh, in the end, it turned to have been Adam Norodin, who's uh, bike had um, uh, spewed oil all, uh, all over the track after he got back on um, and well until he ran out of oil and had to park it up uh, about halfway through around the track and it took them a fair old time to clean it up but um, uh, once we uh, th they did get it cleaned up we got uh, restarted and then we had it was a it was an interesting Moto3 race um, with it, it looked like being uh, another sort of you know decent battle between two or three riders but then people were ended up crashing out again it looked as though we were going to have we were going to be treated to a, a one mere romano fanati uh, sort of bout um and that was really until fanati just blew it and just threw it down the road at the uh, museo and um you know uh, sort of spoiled this kind of fine run of form that he's been having yeah. of late um, Mir went on to take the, the victory at a canter and it was left to the, the guys behind, you know, quite a big absorbing 10 rider five for a second. Yep. 
um, to, to entertain us. And, you know, in fairness, they, they did entertain us quite a bit. And once again, it was those those real Platinum Bay real estate uh, KTMs, that, that brilliant little duo of uh, Marcus Ramirez and Darren Binder that did most of the entertaining uh, with just uh, a succession of quite outlandish moves. And uh, but also perhaps the save of the year so far from Darren Binder, who managed to save, yeah. managed to stay on a bike which was definitely trying to launch him into low Earth orbit, uh, but still managed to stay on for a while at least until he unfortunately crashed out. But um, uh, yeah, I mean that, that those that team once again that that KTM team are really uh, uh, really surprising, really really strong. Uh, ended up with uh, Aaron Connett and Fabio Di Antonio making it another all Honda um, uh, all Honda podium, and that's got to be uh, annoying for KTM because they're just not getting again. They they just they just seem to don't seem to be capable of getting on a or getting on the podium, getting on the box. Yeah, and you know you could make a. I think we could make an exception for Nicola Bugler, sorry, Nicola Bulliger this weekend, um, because he surely would have been in the fight had it not been for that crash. Yeah. You know, he, you know, when the race was restarted, he was really banged up, and you could just see from the first lap that he wasn't going to be in the mix. But, uh, but yeah, you, you just get that feeling that, um, you know, put, you know, if you put a Juan Mir or if you put an Aaron Cannon, um, you put a Jorge Martin on that bike. You know, I, I think I think it's not a case of the KTM being particularly bad. It's just that Honda at the moment has better riders. Um, you know, riders that are just riding well and full of confidence. Um, you know, and, and those Platinum Bay real estate guys are showing that you know it's a capable bike, and that's a private. You know, that's more or less a private team that has, you know, maybe not, maybe hasn't had the best reputation in the past. Yeah, exactly. And um, uh, I mean, we saw uh, Danny Kent get a wild card in uh, uh, in the Mar after losing his rights in uh, in Moto Two, um, or well, after leaving the uh, the Kiefer team in Moto Two, uh, came back. He did extremely well, really. Um, uh, but the fact that he can come in, uh, hasn't ridden a Moto Three bike for uh, a year and a bit, uh, did one day of testing, and then comes in and does some. Uh, he finished in. 10th and he was basically fighting in the same group as uh, Antonelli and uh, and Ben Snyder throughout more or less throughout the race and it was yeah like I spoke to Danny just after the race and he was absolutely sure that the bike had potential to finish second and he was just a bit ring rusty in terms of you know getting his elbows out and really scrapping the Moto3 um, and you know and I think it's it's a wee bit frustrating because you look at Danny's next world champion and you would think that he should be, you know, he should be beating guys like DJ Antonio and 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 Kanet, who are five years younger than him. Um, you know the experience that he has. Um, but you know, all things considered, he had what one dry day of testing at Jerez. He had a a dry, mainly dry qualifying, and then a dry warm up. So that's what four, three sessions yeah. before the race. You know, so it's not a lot of time to get his head around it. Um, but you kind of think it was. It's one of those situations like we kind of saw at the end of 2015. If Danny was on a track by himself, he would have been fine. But when he had to mix it up with people, that's when the problems started, uh, you know, started presenting themselves. Yeah, exactly. And you can, uh, uh, with a bit of confidence, you can get, uh, you, you can battle your way through that. But um, uh, as we say, he hasn't really, well, he hasn't been on a motor three bike for a year and a, for a year and a bit. So uh, it's a, well, a year and a half. So uh, uh, it's a very different kettle of fish indeed. Right. Well, the uh, uh, Juan Mir's win puts him back in charge of the uh, uh, of the championship again. 
He's uh, very comfortably clear, especially with uh, uh, Fanati, uh, Fanati and, and Jorge Martin crashing out. He has a very comfortable lead now, 34 points. Obviously, there's still a long way to go. But, it, it, I mean, Juan Mir, again, it was a fantastic ride by Juan Mir, really. It was just really, really mature. And um, especially as, as he got pretty banged up in that uh pretty banged up in that first corner crash so uh yeah i was uh, i was suitably impressed absolutely yeah just another another impressive race for one mare right so uh what time is it neil it's time for the truth it's the moment of truth winners and losers yes it's that time uh who's your big winner from the uh from this weekend well if you'd been listening to the first half of the show or the first part of the show i think you might know uh, my answer in advance, um, but Johan Zarco is my winner. Uh, home Grand Prix, tons of pressure, a record attendance on Sunday, people standing with billboards saying Zarco for president, <laughs> a spotlight that he is not used to being firmly placed right on him the whole time, the whole build-up between Hareth and here was all about whether he could get on the podium. He said I think he could. He said he thought he could maybe qualify in the front row and he did not show one sign of pressure the entire race weekend. And uh, yeah, Zarco has just been astonishing this year. So he was my big winner from uh, the French Grand Prix. Yeah, I mean, I normally I try to uh, find someone else to make it a little bit interesting, but I just really, there is no one um, who comes out of, uh, out of this as well as Joan Zarco this, uh, this weekend. Yeah, sure, Maverick Vinales takes the championship and he's comfortably in the lead and wins another race. But uh, what Zarco, what Zarco did was just astonishing. The most impressive thing to me, I think, is the fact that um, he had his own plan. He didn't copy ideas from other people he did uh he had this idea to run the soft he's been riding on the softs all weekend uh went out and did it didn't um uh, concern himself with the uh, the proper way to do uh, to do q1 and q2 he just uh, uh, had his own plan right well what we'll do is we'll go out for a uh, for a single race run and uh, a single running q1 and then we'll set out the first half of q2 and see what happens um that's just the like I said the mental strength and courage to actually do that to actually have your own plan follow it up and, and go through with it uh, and the, the other thing I liked about Osaka was the fact that he said um, uh, uh, the, the bike is capable of a podium not I'm capable of a podium, but you know the bike is capable of a podium, and so well, of course he's going to end up on a podium because he is uh, because the bike is the bike that put him there. That kind of sort of modesty is, um, uh, I think, that speaks very very well of him. So uh, yeah, for me, he's definitely the big winner. Um, if Sarko's the winner, who's the loser? It has to be Suzuki. I mean, you look, we've. we've talked a little bit about Suzuki in the second part of the show but um, you know 48 seconds back man that's a factory machine that's a, that's a, that's a bike that not just Finales was challenging oh, sorry it's not just a bike that on which Finales was challenging for podiums at the end of last year Alicia Spargo was doing the same um, and you know and he just he's not <laughs> he's just not showing well at all um, lousy qualifying lousy start to the race and yeah, you know, he said that the bike has made a very small step forward from last year, but the problem is the Yamaha and Honda is just a lot better this year. Um, Ducati has made marginal gains, not to the same extent as its rivals, and Suzuki even less or so still. So, yeah, Suzuki, I think, um, 
you know, a track that should have suited them. Um, and Iannone now is going into his home Grand Prix. Let's not forget that last year, Vinales, I think, was on pole right until the last second when Rossi pipped them. And Iannone's finished on the podium there for the previous two years. So it's going to be a real big weekend for him. Um, he's just finished two races so far this year. And this was quite underwhelming. Yeah, I can uh, I can certainly see your point. That's a very that's that's a very very strong case there. Um, uh, for me, uh, I think I'm going to be a little bit more obscure, and I think I would go for Niccolo Antonelli. You know, Antonelli okay. is a big rider, big name in Moto Three. He was supposed to come into the uh, the factory KTM team, and um, uh, he was going to be their lead rider and, and fight for the championship. He manages to crash out again in the race. Um, where if I look at in the championship, um, I have to look. Well, there he is, down in seventh, down in seventeenth place, uh, which is a long way to go. Um, uh, Danny Kent comes in off of uh, a year and a half off of a Moto Three bike, and he's immediately, you know, running basically the same place as uh, Paces Antonelli and Ben Snyder. You know, Ben Snyder has been struggling a little bit with uh, with his pace early in the race, um, uh, and again with just aggressiveness. And so the fact that Antonelli's sort of in that stuck in that uh, in that sort of rut, that's it doesn't bode well. Much much more of him was uh, was expected of him, uh, and he and he just hasn't delivered but uh yeah it's been um there's it it's a shame because you know you know that the uh, the red bull io ktm team you expect them to be on or about the podium race every every single race and you expect them to be in the championship fight at every single yeah. year this year is just not going to happen um so i don't know can, can you see antonelli finish the season with that team div well i think well that's a that's a good question. I mean, when I spoke to um, uh, when I spoke to Io at the start of the uh, start of the season, he said that um, the the biggest um, uh, issue for him had been, or the biggest disappointment for him with with Antonelli had been uh, that he had to it had been his way of his method of working, and had to teach him a completely different method of working about preparation and all the rest of it, preparing for the race weekend and uh, and all these sort of things. Io said he'd made uh, good progress with, with with that so far, but um, uh, really, I think a few more races, and um, uh, if we, I think. If it's still like this around the summer break thing, then we uh, well, well, it would be it'll certainly be interesting, interesting to see. But uh, at least Antonelli isn't throwing sort of hissy fits the way that uh, certain other riders did in the past. <laughs> no names, no Pactville, Romano, Fanati. But um, uh, so the, so that will help. But it, it, I think um, he really needs to step up and start getting uh, getting results. Though if I, on balance, if I compare my loser to your loser, I would probably have to give it to you because um, I think Suzuki much, much more of a, uh, was expected of Suzuki this year. And, you know, the bike was on the podium last year and, the, uh, or, well, but perhaps we shouldn't say the bike was on the podium last year. Perhaps we should say that Maverick were, Vinales was on the podium despite, uh, despite the Suzuki rather uh the than because of it but um even then when you when you're given a uh, a package which isn't as good as the rest you have to find the rest inside yourself and andre and only so far has just really really failed to uh, uh to to deliver on that and suzuki again they if they're still talking about a lack of rear grip um it's the problem they've had uh since they entered the class basically it's the same problem they've had for three years so and that's that's got to be slightly concerning you know, only for a podium at Magellan. 
<laughs> I think he would. Uh, I think uh, Andrea Iannone would sacrifice his firstborn son for uh, for for for, uh, yeah, for a podium at, uh, at Mugello. But um, I think he would sacrifice his gold phone. Yeah, he, he might. He might just give up his gold phone for a for, for a podium there. But uh, then again, I think most Italian riders would um, uh, would give almost anything for their. Um, they would sell sell their own mothers into slavery um, if they thought it, it gave them a chance of a podium at Mugello. So uh, we shall have to wait and see. Right. Well, thank you very much, Neil. Um, you're back to the test again tomorrow. Yes, absolutely. Back at it. I shall remember my son hat, and uh, I might need to bring a, I don't know, something sharp to try and uh, jam open the door in the media centre. <laughs> but um, if that fails, I shall uh, be plumped under a big tree, and uh, yeah, I'll try and take some videos. Right. So you'll be spending your night. Uh, you'll you'll be spending the rest of tonight um, uh, looking at lock picking videos on YouTube, presumably. <laughs> Exactly, which, you know, doesn't really differ to my normal <laughs> night, to be fair. <laughs> okay, right. Well, thanks very much, Neil. And uh, thanks very much to the listeners. Um, uh, remember to follow the show on Twitter. They're at Paddock Pass Pod. Uh, remember to also look us up on Facebook, uh, facebook.com Paddock Pass Podcast. And uh, if you're listening to us via iTunes or some other uh, uh podcast distribution service make sure you give us a rating and make sure you give us a review because uh, that would make you the most awesome person on the face of the planet and it would help other listeners um, uh, find the show which we would deeply appreciate so thank you very much and till next time The weekend as a whole, uh, I think you could divide into two parts. The first was Thursday and Friday, which wasn't. And he's gone. Obviously, on Thursday, everyone was coming to terms with uh, the news. About yeah, well, I thought, uh, uh, I, was, you know what's um, happened to Neil? Kind of spoiled by the rain. And uh, Neil is um, on the wrong uh, Wi Fi. Brightened up by Saturday afternoon. Now, let's just hope he checks his fucking phone. It was really quite quite interesting actually uh, speaking of which we had uh, wow. three very intriguing races on sunday so um you know it was a it was a, it was a really difficult weekend to start with my phone is actually um um fuck oh ah here we go ah oh, fuck he says